0: This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy Oates, and this is The Full Story. A new wave of independence will enter the next Parliament.
1: Never underestimate the power of women.
0: They're promising action on climate change, women's rights in workplaces, integrity in politics, and to listen to the communities they represent.
1: Our government wasn't listening to us. (coughs) So we've changed the government.
0: The Teal Independents have unseated several high-profile politicians in liberal heartlands, but their success was not an overnight phenomenon. In fact, the Teal strategy was pioneered nearly a decade ago, and since then has been fine-tuned by expert political strategists. Today, the Teal Playbook. It's Wednesday, the 1st of June. How are you going, Anne? Good, thanks, Laura. How are you? Anne Davies is Guardian Australia's Investigations Editor. Did you expect the amount of teals to get in as they did? Did you expect six seats? I certainly
2: was not that surprised. And the reason why is, first of all, I live in Wentworth, so I've seen it up close. I could tell what was going on in my own area. And I also went and spent quite a lot of time up in McKellar and I spent time in Warringah last election. And it was the same vibe among people who are my age, like, you know, in their 50s and 60s, Mm. used to vote Liberal but just can't bring themselves to do it this time round.
0: Right. So if we wanted to understand how this phenomenal result came about and how the Teals came about as well, where should we start, Anne?
2: Well, I think you have to start back in 2013 in the seat of Indi, which is in Victoria's north and that was the seat where Cathy McGowan ran against Liberal politician Sophie Mirabella, who held the
1: seat. Sophie Mirabella, welcome to Breakfast. Good morning, Fran.
2: She was a conservative who was known for her very caustic style, her support of constitutional monarchy. But that election, Cathy McGowan decided to run against her as an independent.
1: I'm Cathy McGowan. I know that the people in Indi are concerned about the future. A vote for me is a vote for a better future for Indi.
2: Kathy McGowan used to be a teacher. Then she was an electoral assistant for Ewan Cameron, who was a federal member for Indi for um, quite a long time. And she owned mm. her own rural consulting business. And so she was really well known in the area. And her campaign pioneered what's come to be known as the Voices of Movement.
0: Mm. A lot of people might have heard of the Voices of movements over the past couple of years, but just in case, what are they? What's the key components of a Voices of movement?
2: Well, the Voices of are a collective of people who are behind the independent campaigns and they're often set up first of all, as a way of galvanising people into participating in the political process. Hmm. In Indi, this started with something called kitchen table conversations.
1: A kitchen table conversation, or a KTC.
2: This is McGowan explaining the process on her website.
1: It's an opportunity for a group of people to get together around a kitchen table or in their office or at a convenient place and talk about the issues that are really important to them.
2: So they were literally organising little meetings around kitchen tables to talk about politics because people don't find it easy to talk about politics. These were structured conversations so people could express their views about what was important to them and what they would like to see change.
1: So we'll need hosts to bring people together and then participants are are people who want to be part of the conversation but perhaps don't want to host. So I'm suggesting that a group of nine or ten is a good number, but it can be less or it can be more.
2: Some of these voices of groups had up to 400, 500 people who attended these meetings, so it wasn't a small thing. And then they went out and talked to their families and their friends.
1: And then wherever you are, so it could be at school, it could be a youth group or a church group or a sports club, Wherever people want to get together to have this opportunity to have a conversation.
2: Some people met for coffee, others had birthday lunches. It also brought the community together, and for the first time, they started talking about issues that they had in common. And then this was the first stage of the process. The second stage was that these people who'd become conveners then wrote up a report at the end, and it was a, it tried to distill what it was that was concerning the community.
1: So everything everybody says goes into the report and then we summarise for the key findings that that come out of it. So that's the most useful and important document that I will have.
2: And those uh, report cards are publicly available. They were made available to local members and they were asked for their feedback on it. And often the voices I've met with a bit of disdain from the local um, MP. And I think that's what probably prompted Kathy McGowan to think, well, if they're not being properly represented, then I should do it. She says, democracy's not a spectator sport. You actually have to get involved. And that was the big difference with these independent campaigns. They've actively worked to involve the community. And I think that's something that the Liberal Party missed.
0: So... Basically, there's this grassroots movement to get together and talk about politics. Out of that comes a report about what the people want and Cathy McGowan decides to take up this advice from the community and run with that on her platform. How did her campaign go? Well,
2: she had a win in a seat that was held with a 9% margin by the Liberals. It was a safe Liberal seat and had been since 1937, So it was something of a miracle when she won.
1: So today it's just not about me or my story. It's about the hundreds of stories, all the people who have made this campaign and today possible. It's a story that is absolutely a tribute to community and to the community of Indi. And so
2: what we saw was the voices of movement it grew and grew from there, and Kathy has been out there actively promoting it and helping other groups set up a similar process. In fact, she's fittingly called the Godmother
0: of the Independents. Right. So, what other candidates did we see grow out of Voices of other than Kathy McGowan?
2: Well, the first one really was Karen Phelps, who saw an opportunity when Malcolm Turnbull was. Turfed out of the leadership and then left and caused a by election. So, Karen Phelps was a very well known doctor in the eastern suburbs and she quickly built a constituency and then won a by election in a very safe Liberal seat. And everyone went, wow, that's pretty unusual. Mm. And then soon after that, we come to the 2019 election and Kathy McGowan, decided she was going to step down. She nominated Helen Haynes as her successor, another well-known local figure, and they managed to pull it off and get Helen elected. Mm. And then we saw the enthusiasm and momentum that had got Helen Haynes elected roll into seats like Warringah, which is on Sydney's northern beaches. And now is a really interesting seat. So this was the seat that was held by Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister, who was seen as one of the roadblocks to Australia doing anything on climate change. And it had deeply irritated a lot of the Liberal voters in Warringah who said he just doesn't represent our views. Mm. And so the voices of Warringah was set up and they worked for some time. There was another group, you know, kicked Tony out. Um, but they all worked to try and find a candidate. They came up with Zali Stegall, who was a really well-known figure in the electorate. She was a, an Olympic skier and also a well-known barrister in the area.
0: And, of course, we know what happened next.
2: Yes, you know, everybody thought this will be a bit of a fizzer. Uh, but of course, she won resoundingly in 2019.
0: Zali, 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 Zali. ABC reporter Nick Doll is at Zali Steggles headquarters. Uh, I guess, Nick, to say there's a celebratory mood there would be a gross understatement.
2: And it was an absolute slap in the face for the Liberals there. They just assumed that they would win the seat, and they didn't.
0: Was this a wake-up call at the time for the Liberals?
2: Well, I think this is where the Liberals have really come unstuck this election. They viewed Waringa and Indi as really just aberrations, particularly Waringa. Um, I should mm. say that in 2019, Karen Phelps also ran again and she lost. The Liberals regained the seat. So I think the Liberal Party thought, well, you know, with good campaigns we can win these seats back. They certainly didn't see it as a phenomenon that was going to take off and they didn't sit and analyse what it was that had caused their own base to become so disaffected. I think they just thought that it was anger at Tony Abbott, it was a one-off and that it wasn't something more fundamental.
0: So was there any difference between the original voices of campaign that we saw in Indi versus what played out in Wentworth and Warringah in Sydney in terms of the strategy?
2: Well, the big difference in 2019 in Warringah and Wentworth is that behind the scenes, there was some really professional campaigning expertise so uh, a guy called Anthony Reid, who runs a company called Populaires, had been employed by the Stegel campaign and he also worked on the Wentworth campaign. And he came out of the Labor Party, he'd been involved in campaigning, he's been involved in um, polling, and so he understood how to put together a professional campaign.
0: Why did we see this former Labor guy team up With these independents? What was his thinking and his strategy here?
2: I think his idea was primarily to capture disaffected Liberals, Liberals who were sick of being dismissed by their own party as latte-sipping elites. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. But who couldn't quite bring themselves to vote Labor or the Greens. And so he recognised that he needed to give these people an alternative choice as to who they could vote for. He also recognised that these campaigns could pick up a few voters from Labor and the Greens camp, but the main goal had to be Liberals. So it's an opportunity and he saw it and
0: seized it. When you say he saw it and seized it, what have we seen since 2019 from Anthony Reid?
2: So in the lead up to this election, uh, he worked with a number of groups, including the independent candidates that came out of the Voices movement in McKellar, Goldstein, Kuyong, Hughes and, of course, Wentworth.
0: Mm. So the Teals hit list, basically. Yes.
2: He was able to lend them the professionalism that they needed and that meant doing things like polling, uh, devising a strategy, helping on media, just like any political
0: party would do with when it was in a campaign. Right, so what was the key message that Reid and others, these teal independents that he's now teamed up with, decided would peel these Liberals away from the party towards the teal independents?
2: Reid recognised that climate was the number one issue across all these seats, and as he said in an interview with the Fairfax newspapers, it's the one where the government the Liberal moderates in particular, refused to listen to their communities. Mm. And since 2019, we've seen a series of climate disasters and really inaction. So Mm. we had the 2019-2020 bushfires, which made many people concerned about climate. And then we've had floods. Um, We had the embarrassment of the Glasgow summit. And we've had the Nationals and the Liberals publicly divided about their emissions target agenda. I mean, that's a perfect storm for the Liberal
0: Party. Mm, So the voices of movements are gaining ground, the independents have teamed up with an experienced political strategist, and there's this growing cohort of disaffected Liberal voters. And then along comes Climate 200. Tell me about this group, Anne.
2: So Climate 200 is a fundraising vehicle that's been funding independent candidates with a focus on climate action. And also um, the same groups that are taking an interest in, in integrity in politics, and it's got money from both small and big donors, and they aim to raise fifteen to twenty million, which really put them on a similar footing to the major parties in terms of being mm. able to fund a political campaign. So its convener is Simon Holmes a Court. His father, Robert Holmes Court, was one of Australia's first billionaires. Um, from Western Australia, a big mining investor. And Simon has decided to um, use his expertise and money to set up this organisation. He's also a director of the Smart Energy Council and the Australian Environmental Grant Makers Network.
0: So it's important to clarify that Climate 200 didn't start these teal campaigns either, but we do know that as a funding vehicle, they contributed a lot of money to them. How significant was that funding to the success of the teals?
2: So I think it was really significant. I'll just stress again, they only funded campaigns when the campaign itself had raised a significant amount of money. Like I think they sort of said you had to raise 200 thousand dollars locally so climate 200 managed to raise all up about 12 million dollars i mean that's a huge amount of money and they only had to spend it over uh, you know less than 10 seats that meant they had budgets of over a million dollars in those seats and that compares to say kuyong which raised $1.2 million in through its Kuyong Forum. Now, that's the seat that Josh Frydenberg held as treasurer, and he was facing mm. a competition from Monique Ryan, who was funded by Climate 200. So what we saw is the teals matching the sort of funding that's available to the major parties. And so, you know, this Big pot of money has been able to turbocharge and professionalise the campaigns. Now, Holmes of Court says he only put in about 2% of that amount um, of the $12 million, and they actually do publish lists of their donors already, which is more than the major parties do. And you can see there are thousands of names of people who've put in money. They don't tell you how much, but there is a very long list of people and I think you'd find that a lot of them lived in the teal seats.
0: Something I want to touch on is the type of candidates that were selected to run against the Liberals here. The media has been calling them professional women, which I think is a bit of an odd term when you you break it down, it's wealthy white women. Is this a coincidence that almost all of the teals fit this mould in?
2: No, in fact... um Zoe Daniel, a journalist who successfully ran in Goldstein, she called this the elephant in the room, that actually, you know, there was a reason why they were all white and in their 40s. It's partly because they had the time and the resources to be able to step away from their big jobs. Mm. They had support at home, whether it was, you know, professional help or their partner. And they were able to put the time in to actually run a proper campaign. Now, that's pretty hard if, you know, if you've got a blue-collar job or multiple jobs and you're working in hospo or whatever. Mm. So they looked like the people they were trying to get to vote for them. It was a big contrast to who the Liberal Party tends to select, which are men in suits.
0: How did these teal campaigns compare to the Liberal campaigns that we saw this election and how they played out?
2: Well, I'd say, um, you know, when you went to the seats, it was clear that the Liberals were clearly outnumbered by supporters mm. of the independents. Like the Tills campaigns typically had over a 1,000 volunteers, of which maybe 700 were active. So, for instance, Sophie Scamps had a launch she did have a, a band called lime cordial there and um angus and julia stone um but she had 5000 people and that's the sort of support they were generating and we're not talking people who just you know turned up waved a banner at the at the launch we're talking people who went out door knocking who manned phone banks You know, they they were really active and determined. And for a lot of them, it's the first time they'd ever got involved. So they were really energised. Whereas, you know, the Liberals really struggled to get more than about 400 to a launch of Mm. a prominent candidate. So that's the sort of difference. The Liberals have also struggled to motivate their base, particularly where they've had bad disputes over who's going to be the candidate. So, for instance, in Warringah, they didn't have a candidate until right when the election was called. Mm. So there's no one out there campaigning. I mean, how do you campaign for someone who's faceless? (laughs) There's about 9,000 members of the New South Wales Liberal Party all up, but they're not nearly all active. And so, you know, maybe it's a couple of thousand who are active and it it really showed up on polling day. You could see the difference. There were literally, you know, there'd be a sea of teal T-shirts and three or four Liberal T-shirts. And I think that's the difference between the Liberals' ground game and the independents.
0: Next, what the teal wave means for the future of the Liberals and Australian politics. So, Anne, as we know now, out of 20 or so teal candidates, six seats have fallen to the teals in the Liberal heartland, including those of really prominent Liberal MPs like Josh Frydenberg. From everything you've told me so far, the signs were there that this could happen. Were the Liberals surprised by this result?
2: I think The Liberals were in denial because, you know, particularly someone like Tim Wilson in Goldstein, the Liberal member, he would say things like, oh, you know, they're just frauds, they're greens in teal clothing and he put them down, basically saying all these people were being hoodwinked and that clearly didn't go down well because people just got more determined, I think, to prove him wrong. So... I think that's an example of them not really getting across the full scope of what was going on in their seats.
0: So history shows us that once elected, independents become pretty embedded in the community and they're pretty effective at getting re-elected. What does that mean for the Liberal Party going forward?
2: Well, obviously they're going to go through some real soul-searching at this point. They have to work out how they reach those moderate voters in these seats who, you know, are natural liberal supporters, but who are so disenfranchised or feel they're so disenfranchised and feel that the party doesn't speak to them.
0: Mm. You say they need to reach these voters, but we've heard, you know, people from the coalition out and about saying, let's forget about them. Let's forget about the seats in the inner city. I mean, is that a big mistake for the Liberal Party to make if they decide to just swing to the right?
2: One thing they should keep in mind is that those seats were actually the money machines for the Liberal Party. When you look at where the big fundraising events happen, I mean, business executives live in these seats. So it is really important to keep plugged in with that part of your constituency. But leaving that aside, I think the Liberal Party has done better when it's a broad church. And that means trying to be as inclusive as possible and not playing to a particular constituency. Now, that's not Mm. what commentators like Peter Credlin on Sky After Dark is prescribing. She says, no, the future lies in looking after the people on the fringes of the cities who um, are struggling with their cost of living. So they say move to the right. I think this is going to be something they'll have to think through really carefully because you don't get two goes at it. If you go down one path, you can't just pivot and come back again and it's going to be hard enough anyway for them with someone like Peter Dutton who has a long history of being a conservative to convince the party and its voters that the party has actually changed.
0: And as you've just explained, the beginning of all this started with people wanting to find a way to talk to other people in their community about politics and actually bring it down to the human level. What does it say that so many people voted in the teals? What does it say about what voters want from politics going forward?
2: I think there's a couple of lessons. One is you cannot take safe seats for granted whatever side of politics you're on. You've got to do a lot more work. Uh, secondly, people hate pork barrelling, particularly if they're in safe seats and don't benefit. And then I think there's the question of candidates who are deeply enmeshed in their communities and listen. And that is something that I think both sides of politics would will take close notice of. So I think the real thing is that The genie is actually out of the bottle now that people in these teal seats have now experienced getting actively involved in politics. So I don't think it's ever going to be the same. And I'm hoping that that energy and involvement keeps going because it's really good for democracy and whether people decide to vote for major parties or independence. The most important thing that we'll get out of all of this is a much more engaged community. And maybe it'll just start with the Teals, but maybe there will be other communities as well who'll say, you know what, I want my politician to turn up, talk to me and listen to what we actually care about.
0: That was Anne Davies, Guardian Australia's investigations editor. You can read Dan's piece on the future of the Liberals, titled "A Step to the Left or a Lurch to the Right: What Next After the Liberals' Election Horror Show?" Plus, more of the Guardian's coverage on the election results at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and Ellen Lee Beater. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles yoni Gabriel Jackson, and me, Laura Mefiotes. Okay, catch you tomorrow.